Welcome to Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I'm Tracy Brown, the fraud-busting body language expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion-dollar business deals. And I want you to be able to tell whose pants are on fire, make better decisions, and build your bottom line as well. Get ready. Let's dive in. It's Tracy back with another episode of Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups with Super Producer Alex. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, I'm fresh off of Thanksgiving. I've eaten way too many turkey sandwiches. Tur- did you? Did you? Because did you do anything for Thanksgiving? Yeah, I made a whole bunch of turkey sandwiches. Did, did you fry the turkey like you'd done before? No, it came from the grocery store in a bag. Uh, like like the rotisserie chickens, but but bigger? No, sliced. Like with a label on it that says, yeah, yeah, it says turkey. Turkey for <laughs> Alex's Thanksgiving Christmas sandwiches. That's what it that, was. So that's horrible. I took bread and mayonnaise and mustard and pickles and guacamole, and I made turkey sandwiches. Guacamole? Good God. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just avocado on there. Well, no, but there's the wrong spices. It's not a Thanksgiving delicacy. <sighs> I did Guac- not know you were the, quite the foodie that you are. But tell me this. What did you eat for Thanksgiving? We went to the farm. You we ate had- a farm? Oh uh, yeah, well yeah, my hu- no, ate the whole farm. No, my husband's farm. We went there, and uh, and his mom made a big old turkey and some uh, sweet potatoes and mashed potatoes, and I made Did my pie. Did you bring pie? You brought pie. How'd that go? The pie, uh, the pie went good because now um, my mother in law makes a point to. Um, tell me that the pie is good because the first time we met and I brought the pie, it did not go so good. What happened? What could go wrong with bringing a pie? Well, here's the problem is that my, <laughs> my husband failed to tell me that my sister-in-law won the state fair apple pie competition. <laughs> and for farm folk, that is like the Super Bowl. And now I make a damn good apple pie, but um, the only thing that they could tell me as they ate the pie was how great um, my sister-in-law's pie is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, um, and that's when I looked up and I saw the shrine to her on the on uh, the mantle of the fireplace with her and the sash of winning the state fair competition in, in the picture. And um, there's a state fair, Colorado state fair. Yeah. You sure it wasn't like the County fair, which is always Mm -hmm. like a tri-county thing. I don't know how they always get three counties. They can't use four counties or two counties. It's always three counties. Nope. Huh? Did they, did they have a hog in the competition? Uh, they have in the past, yeah. <laughs> I was kidding about that, but okay, we'll it. go with it. Four <laughs> H man, it goes on at the farm. But let's let's talk about meals because I'm I'm feeling a little disappointed in your Thanksgiving meal because you wouldn't come out to the farm. So um, let's let's say let's say you could pick your last meal. I played this game with a friend the other day. Your last meal, you knew you're going to die imminently. You could be on death row. You could be sick. You could just decide you're going to die. What would your last meal be? Uh, you know, I, I can't say that it would be anything particularly inventive. Um, Thanksgiving dinner would be just great. You know, let's have turkey and sweet potatoes and, uh, I would be just fine with that, but really, you know, food is utilitarian to me. Like it's functional. I eat food and then I feel, you know, if it's good food, I feel good and I go do things. And then when I run out of energy, it's time to eat food again. That's just how I look at it. It's no different than putting gas in the tank. And, 
I don't really care if I'm eating peanut butter and jelly or a four course meal. It really doesn't matter to me. It's just utilitarian. No, oh, I love the experience. I love eating. I love the I love the exception the- to that rule, of course, is a Tracy pie. Well, yeah, my yeah, which great. is it clearly should be winning a Tri County Award somewhere. Well, my husband told me at that point that I could enter my pie in a competition and shut my mouth a little bit, and um, oh, yeah, that hasn't. You've got to enter it in the state fair up against his sister and oh, no. win. Mm-mm. You got to take it. Come nope. on. Mm-mm. Come on. Where's Not your competitive juju? Come on, get in there. It is gone. Not doing it. <laughs> what are we doing today besides, besides complaining about pies? Uh, well, we're talking to Kelly Richmond Pope, who is a super big deal. She um, she produced the uh, documentary. You can find it on, I believe, Amazon. It's called All the Queen's Horses. And she is a PhD uh, forensic accountant. Oh. And um, she has a TED talk on what what it's like to be a whistleblower and what mm-hmm. that really takes. And um, she is she is one of my favorite guests that we've had. She's she's pretty great. I always wondered what happened to a whistleblower after the whistle's been blown. Well, I'll tell you. She, well, she'll she'll tell you. And none of it's good. Oof. None of it's good. It's it, when when people decide to blow the whistle. uh pretty much they're, they're pretty much given their life up at that point yeah right? yeah i mean there are laws to protect them in certain ways and there's a reason we have those and it's not because we're proactive about making laws it's because we have to have those uh but i would think that pretty much their life is over yeah well at least their their um their career anyway their career is yeah yeah for sure because no one huh. wants a tattletale Huh. Well, I'm excited to hear this. This will be interesting. Didn't she do a documentary or something? Well, that's what I said. Yeah. All the queen sources. And it's, it's the biggest municipal fraud, I think in the country ever, wow. ever caught. And so what, what she does is um, kind of like what I do on the podcast, but she'll, she'll go on the road and take her video crew with her, I believe. And, uh, and just talk to victims and people that have committed uh, crimes and, and uses that in her accounting classes as examples well it's too bad that we did not have her over in australia recently for another case of fraud oh let me tell you about this one because this really caught my eye uh again in australia so you know this was actually it was a while back it was 2019 i didn't realize it was that far back but nonetheless uh so there's a woman who worked at a, at a tasmanian veteran hospital and over the course of 40 months she was able to embezzle hundreds of thousands of dollars in U.S. terms. But get this, here's where it gets interesting. Hmm. She spent all of the money on online gambling, playing an online slot machine app on her phone. Oh. Okay, just digest that for a second. Then I'm going to give you the fun part. You ready? Well, ha- well, ha- hang on. No, because I, I just wonder if she's See, that's just like you. A, you're never ready for fun. If, she, never. if she's working at a Tasmanian vet clinic, do you think people bring in Tasmanian devils? <laughs> do you, you think that's pretty funny, don't you? I do. Yeah, yeah. You're entertaining yourself, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what is, okay, finish the story. I don't know if the Tasmanian devil is, is real or not. What I do know is they got a lot of animals down there that we don't have up here, like wombats, for example kangaroos, koala bears, um, yada, yada. So things that, so I guess it's entirely possible that there is a Tasmanian devil that you and I don't know about. I've, no, I've seen them on TV. They spin around and have trouble talking. No, that was the cartoons on Saturday morning. You were exactly. watching. Yeah, that's not real. So what she did, so this, this app 
that she got on her phone. It, it features what they call real Las Vegas slot machines, just like the ones you know and love. And you could purchase virtual coins with real money and then use those coins to put them into the slot machines. And, uh, and, and you can play this thing. And she became so addicted to it, she would play it all the time. She would even set it to play itself automatically overnight. What? So she is pumping real money into a virtual slot machine using virtual coins that cost real money to purchase. But here's the kicker. Huh. It doesn't matter what the slot machine comes up. You never get any actual cash back. What? They pay you out in more virtual coins that can only be used in their slot machines. She spent hundreds of thousands of dollars buying virtual coins to put into a virtual slot machine in order to have the game play itself. And then when it won, she just got more virtual coins. She could never get any money back. Oh my God. Yeah. Our guest today, Kelly would have a thing or two to say about, about that. <laughs> I think so maybe we should bring that. Well, maybe we should bring that up, but uh, so I'm excited to hear that about uh, Kelly Richmond Pope and, uh, and this largest municipal fraud in history. Oh yeah. And, and this, this, uh, this, this woman who committed all this fraud, she ended up, um, well, she ended up in jail, but she bought like she spent all the money on um, show horses. Show horses, uh, and, and you talk about a way to spend a lot of money fast. It is on a yeah horse. horse. Yeah, that'll do it right there. Yeah, yeah, it's but um, a hole in the ground that you throw money into. I think. Yeah, let's. That's not that different from the slot machine that you put the money into and let it play itself, and you never get anything back. Like that is about how horses, which is are. really not any different than having a boat. Yeah, it's the same boats, yeah. horses, mm -hmm. the hole in the water you throw money into. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, you know what? Let's let's quit analyzing <laughs> this and let Kelly explain it all. You ready? Let's bring somebody in who's smarter than, well, me. <laughs> let's right. do it. Okay. Kelly, thank you so much for coming on Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. It's really cool to have you and get to meet you. Thank you for having me. Now here's, um, we got connected on LinkedIn somehow and, or, or no, no, a friend of mine who's been on my podcast told me to look you up. That's what it is. And, um, we were on this walk a couple of weeks ago in St. Louis and she goes, do you know, Kelly Richmond Pope? I said, I do not. She says, you have to get in touch with her. So that's how the LinkedIn thing came. And um, I watch, cause you have, not only are you a PhD and professor and like, I don't know, pretty big deal uh, in accounting and um, and, uh, you know, with a, talking about fraud a lot. But you have your own documentary. Like I do all I do the that. queen's horses, which I watched and I have so many questions about. OK, so first, let's talk about you, because I mean, to have a Ph.D. in in business and accounting is kind of, uh, I don't know, in my world, it's a little bit unusual. Right. Because <laughs> because like you can like. You got choices in business. You can teach or you can go out and in, in like work, right? Not that you don't work like with what you're doing, but how did you end up where you are? Yeah, that's a great question. I am um, always liked teaching. And so I um, find that being an academic is a job that changes every class you have. So you can reinvent yourself. You can reinvent your class. And, um, it's a different feeling because I don't have the same um, structure on top of me. So if I have an idea, I can do it in my class. I don't have to ask 15 people, is it okay for me to do this and wait for approval to do this? 
So it's it's a freedom that I thought fit my personality uh, very well. Okay, because I can tell just from our interactions, you like to move fast. Nothing is gonna like you're gonna you're gonna be doing stuff, and so I can imagine that waiting wouldn't work for you at all. No, <laughs> I don't always like to wait. I don't. Oh boy. Okay, so how, why? Um, because because you got into school, you liked it, and you just kept going to get your PhD. So what? Tell I us did. about about that journey. Well, I um, graduated from North Carolina A&T State University with my BS in accounting. And at the time, um, a lot of uh, students were going to get their 150-hour requirement, which meant you needed to go to graduate school so that you would have 150 credit hours to sit for the CPA exam. So I went on to graduate school at Virginia Tech and then decided, um, my dad was my mentor and decided I want to be just like my dad and become a professor. So I um, applied to the PhD program at Virginia Tech and was accepted. And the rest is history. So, you know, I've been in higher education. Um, I earned my PhD in 2001. Uh-huh. You do the math. It's been a while. Yeah. Wow. Now, what was your dissertation on? My dissertation actually uh, is right behind me. Ethical reasoning and Machiavellian tendencies of accounting students. So, oh, my goodness. Interested in um, the decision making tendencies of accounting students. Huh. And what did you find? Oh, God. Terrace, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe I found that accounting students were very Machiavellian-like, unlike um, pop, unlike what you may think. But that was back in 2000. It is 2021. So, so it could be all different. It, I could open it up and tell you. Nah, <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like it might melt my brain. Um, so, so um, let's talk about because one day you woke up and you're like, you know what? Uh, I, I mean, do you go like searching around for fraud stories or what do you, what do you do? So I do actually go searching around for fraud stories because I use those stories as a teaching tool, mm-hmm. financial accounting and managerial accounting. But I find that fraud is a really good way to engage my class because fraud often is the lack of ethics or the lack of internal controls or the lack of sound accounting principles. Mm-hmm. Those those cases bring students in and allows them to open their minds up to why what I'm saying to them about accounting is really important. So I'm always looking for a good story that has an interesting character, some interesting tension, and um, you know, just just a good who done it. And the tough thing, and one of the reasons why I created all the Queen's horses was because there's a lot of high quality storytelling out right now. But a lot of it has content you really can't use in the classroom because mm-hmm. it's too dramatic, it's too violent, it's too intimate, it's too something. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to create something that I could actually use. And that's really was the motivation or inspiration behind all the Queen's horses. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about this. So because uh, you're you're in Chicago and so Dixon, Illinois is where this whole thing went down. And uh, how far is that away? It's about three hours west of downtown Chicago. Okay. So um, I've been out in that area. I've been, I've been, you know, where I've been is to DeKalb. You ever been there? Yeah. Yeah. I have have a good friend there. Okay. So, uh, so farmland, like not much around. And how did you discover this case? Was it in the news or did, were you just 
Like, I'm going to go to Dixon and see what's going on. Like, how, how, did, how did this happen? It was actually um, in the news. I read a headline in the Chicago Tribune that said city comptroller embezzles $30 million at the time. That's what the first headline was. Mm-hmm. Whoa, where in the world is Dixon? And that's just how it started. Wow. Okay. So, so here's, here's what happened and I'm going to summarize it and then you can, you can dive in and add in. So city comptroller, no college degree sounded like, and, um, started embezzling money from the city. And by the time I did the math on it, and this was over about 20 years, it sounded like she took every cent the city had. Is that I mean, is that how the math worked out on that? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, she was able to move money around so that it appeared that things were still functioning properly when in actuality she was um, stealing a lot. But there's an amount of surplus that sort of is sitting. So everything in a town is not accounted for all the time. Uh Move money around to cover the holes that, that her theft created. And I think she just did that very well. Um, okay, so so let's dive in a little bit further into this. So you uh, you read the story and you're like, oh my gosh! And then and then how did you how did you get to? Wow, I'm going to get a film crew together and I'm going to go out there and see if they'll talk to me. Like, what's the? How did that whole thing come about? Well, I was um, going around the country doing on camera interviews with white collar felons, whistleblowers, and victims of fraud in the first place. So I was working with a team that we would go and do these interviews. And so when Dixon happened, I said, hey guys, let's go to Dixon and start talking to people and start recording people. So that's, it started off with just, let's collect a few interviews and store. And then uh-huh. it turned into, hey, I think we have something here. Uh-huh. Long process though, at least five and a half years. Really? Oh yeah. Wow. Okay. So was it, what was the hardest part of it? I think the hardest part was um, getting people to talk and to feel comfortable. Yeah. With me, I'm not from Dixon. Mm-hmm. Um, so making people think that or understand that I wanted to share the fraud story and not make the town of Dixon look like a bad place to live. Right. Well, OK, because it, it looked like a nice place to live, really. Um, and so this, so she stole all this money and, you know, it starts small. That's always how it does. People figure out they're not getting caught and they just kind of inch it up and inch it up. And pretty soon she's stealing millions and millions of dollars. But what's interesting is, is that she um, had, what was it, 400 show horses that she ended up? 400, 400, a little over 400 quarter horses. Yes. Now, this is interesting to me because it's not like in one, like she has to have a staff for that. Like you can't just like, like what, what were her assets or at, at the time that this whole thing fell? Oh, wow. She, I mean, in terms of dollar value, I couldn't tell you that, but I mean, she owned real estate, she owned cars, she owned luxury furs, luxury clothing, expensive hats, expensive boots. Uh, You know, she had the finest of everything, but money was no issue. So um, she lived a very lavish life Mm -hmm. and she could well, and, and she was winning with these horses. It sounds like they were really uh, well-trained. Like she was doing a good job, right? With oh, yeah. uh, the resources she gave herself. And, and you know, what, what's interesting about what Rita shows us is with the right resources, anybody can do a good job. Give someone an unlimited amount of money mm-hmm. and they can fulfill whatever dream they have. Mm-hmm. That that's what we see through her. 
is what if you had a blank checkbook or an open bank account to grow and do whatever that that your heart desired? And that's who Rita was. Mm -hmm. Well, what else is there to learn from this case? Because she cooked the books pretty good. It sounded like and and you didn't make it too complex in the in the uh, uh, film. Right. Because that's not good filmmaking. But what really happened? Like once you got in there, can, can you I guess I mean, really, it, it this it, it is a simple scheme. I mean, you have a small team. You have one person that dominates and has all the power and everyone trusts that one person. So it makes it easy for theft to happen because no one's asking any questions. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Rita just really moved money from one account to the next. And then she took the money out of the secret account. It's pretty easy. And it was so easy that it made you question, well, why didn't anyone notice this? Well, that's what's so interesting to me because now here, here, I was just kind of blown away when the city next door to Dixon somehow got wind of their financial trouble and sent them a note and said, Hey, something's going wrong with your town and the finances. And they did the, for one, how did the city next door figure, figure that out? Well, they had um, a different form of government. So they had a full-time employee that was getting prepared for a monthly council meeting and notice the anomalies or the discrepancies between their um, fund balance and Dixon's fund balance. And Dixon and the town, Sterling, Illinois, should have looked similar, similar population, similar annual budget size. And so um, this particular individual said, well, wait a minute, why are you all running a deficit? You shouldn't. And this time, um, we should look similar. And that was the first, um, I'll call it a yellow flag, because it wasn't, no one paid attention to it. You know, it was but people just kept sort of business as usual. And then, um, then, you know, 18 months after that initial question, she was arrested. Wow. So how can the, cause you have like a city council and you have a mayor and you have like people in the office and how, how could it be that everyone could just accept that they were continually borrowing money and didn't have anything for projects like how does that happen well people don't always know the rights that they have and so one you have um i would i would argue a very disengaged community i mean just think about us how i couldn't tell you the last time i've went to a village meeting in the village of the town that i live in uh-huh. so you know and today it's ironic um today's a, a voting day and so you know what how many of us truly exercise our civic responsibility Right. Probably, you know, we might vote in a presidential election, but I'm thinking our local, our local elections, how engaged are we? How often do we go to those monthly meetings or quarterly meetings and look at the town finances? Mm -hmm. So when you have people that are not doing that and not asking questions, it makes for someone like a Rita lurking in the, in the background, you know, easily able to just attack because she knows no one's paying attention. Mm hmm. So what would like, obviously, they didn't have dual controls on, on the checks. They didn't like, like they didn't do a lot of things that like they had only one person in charge. What what else can we really learn from this? Like, like even on a on a social trust perspective, like what what's your take on it? I think that we learned that we put controls in place just to protect us all. You know, you don't have to question 
if someone is doing the right thing or the wrong thing, if you have the proper controls in place, if you're training people to to for them to know what your mission is, why all of this um, matters, then people will buy in. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So, um, what was your like as far like so? So it took you like five years to get people to talk. And well, yeah, but one of the but I want to say that the take the case needed to end. Mm-hmm. So you know, Rita steals the money. Rita's arrested. Well, you think it took her 20 years to steal money. So yeah. Rita steals the money. She's arrested. Then she um, pleads not guilty. Then there's um, an aspect of court proceedings. Um, then she's found guilty. Then she has sentencing. Then she is reports to prison. And then the town gets its money back. Mm-hmm. Life is back to as much normalcy as, as one can get after some a fraud like this. That took about five years to tell that story. Okay. Sometimes when you, when you, if you look at the Dixon fraud and you see any news outlet that was early, they just talked about, here's this woman that stole this money and their reporting stops there. My reporting went to the end. So it took a while for the whole story to play out. Well, it did. And, and to get the townspeople's opinions of her and, uh, like, uh, like at the beauty shop and all, and all these things, like, it's, it's really interesting to, um, was it hard to get people to open up, uh, once they said they'd chat with you? Um, you know, in the beginning, it wasn't hard towards the end. When you got to around year four and a half, people were tired of talking about it. Yeah. They just wanted to move on. And so, um, it got harder. Uh-huh. Now, here was one of the things that I thought was super fascinating is the because they auctioned off everything. They auctioned off her trailers and her horses and her. uh, I'm sure they sold the properties and the whole thing. Those horses didn't bring near what she paid for. them. No. And that's what you often see when the government seizes assets and they sell them off. Yeah. Um, Man, that's that's the typical auction behavior, uh, auction culture, you know you know, the highest bidder, you, you try to, you, you're looking for someone to buy it at the highest, the highest, whatever the highest bidder will make is what you'll get. So yeah, she think about people walked away with prize award-winning um, livestock at really discount prices. Yeah. They, okay. So let's talk about this whole concept of being the whistleblower, right? Cause that's what happened. Like, so, cause, uh, in, in, cause you don't, you don't see people committing this level of fraud that go on vacation it, because no, you don't, because they don't want anybody in their books, right? Cause they're not, they'll, they'll figure it out. Um, and that's why the banks regulate, like you have to go on vacation as a bank employee. Right. So, um, your TED talk was fascinating, right? About how you address the, how not just you, but like society addresses whistleblowers and, and you don't like them. Here here we have one in this story. That's she's a hero. Yeah. Now it's interesting. Let me, let me qualify that. We don't tend to like corporate whistleblowers. Okay. Kathy was an interesting whistleblower because she was a, she whistleblew to protect taxpayers. Okay. So for that reason, I think she um, was shielded from the typical backlash that whistleblowers receive. Mm-hmm. Now, let's let's talk about that a little bit, because whistleblowers, there's been a lot of them. Right. Um, uh, 
Enron, I think, was because because most fraud is found by whistleblowers. A whistleblower, not, and a lot of times by accident. But yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So then, um, like, what are some other big ones out there? Was it was Wells Fargo one of them? Was that a whistleblower? Yeah, they were whistleblowers, but they weren't listened to. Um, Wells Fargo had every case has a whistleblower. Um, every case has a whistleblower. The, the, the issue is the whistleblower typically isn't supported. So uh, even with Bernard Madoff, um, Harry McCopolis, he was a whistleblower. No one believed him. People thought he was um, odd, eccentric. But what tends to happen is the whistleblower then becomes on display. And we start attacking the whistleblower when, in fact, that person probably has something that we really need to know. So um, every I, I always love to say after every great fraud, there's a great whistleblower. Wow. And before so every before every great fraud, there's a whistleblower. Because you know what I also heard is um, there was a, a group of Boeing employees and whistleblowers on that. Uh, uh, what is it? 737 Max. Is that the. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how what's your do you have any tips for whistleblowers or it's just like like why would someone take that risk? I think it really depends on what the risk actually is, because um you know, if you can't sleep at night, if it's um, if it's if it's something that's um, jeopardizing people's health and and and, the, and your livelihood or their livelihood, I mean, it's it's a very very personal decision, and I think everyone cannot withstand what happens to a whistleblower. And you have to really ask yourself, can you? So um, I think that for um, potential whistleblowers, make sure you have not only the evidence to support what you're saying but make sure you have your future mapped out because there will be bumps, there will be difficulties. And a lot of people that you think will support you and agree with you publicly may not do it. So you need to be prepared for that. But in the end, a lot of things that whistleblowers have said to me over the years is they felt more relieved by coming forward and saying what they needed to say. Well, in in some of the, uh, some of the, uh, even the, um, uh, let's call them perpetrators, criminals, embezzlers, whatever that I've interviewed. Um, they all say they almost felt relieved to uh, admit what they'd done just because it was start, started to weigh so heavy. And a lot of them said it never really solved the problem that they thought they had in the first place, which was like, could be depression or you, you name it. So, mm-hmm. well, and I think that um, crime is such a um, multifaceted emotion. Because I think that at some point in your crime spree, it has satisfied something. It might be very immediate, but it, it, it check a box. And then, you know, you there's, I think, just like there's evolutions of grief, there's evolutions of crime. Mm-hmm. And I think when you, when you do it for so long, you, um, you get accustomed to it. And that high that it once brought you doesn't bring you that anymore. So I think when you are discovered, you think that you are, um, it didn't help you or it didn't, it didn't fulfill you in the way. What I would argue is it fulfilled you a while ago. You just now are in a different stage of your crime where you are expecting or able to do certain things that may not be as important to you as it once was at the beginning. So. Oh, wow. Now, how, how many, um, how many folks have you interviewed? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I couldn't even give you a number. Wow. Stop counting. Um, Because for a long time, I was just focusing on um, white collar offenders, Mm -hmm. really learning a lot about not only them, but myself, you know, through those interviews. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so then it's been victims, it's been whistleblowers. So I don't know a number. I, I can't tell you. Cause I mean, I, I don't want to say it's been 50 and then say I'm wrong. Cause I, <laughs> I, I count it. Now, um, what are you doing with all these interviews? I use them to teach my students. Really? So, so you're just keeping them. Mm-hmm. So I use the stories. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a really effective, powerful way to um, teach. You know, storytelling is, is a powerful way for people to open up, um, let their guards down mm-hmm. and listen, and, and sometimes empathize in a way that they wouldn't normally do without a story. Wow. What's the most, besides the Dixon case, what's the most interesting uh, case that you, uh, can you talk about it or not? I don't have one because I find all of them fascinating for different reasons. So right now, the case that I um, think is really interesting, um, I just watched um, Queen Pins. Oh, um, I saw that too. I loved it. And, and, and although uh, I don't think the whole movie was um, true, um, and it wasn't, but the the gist of it was, and I, what I found so fascinating was how just ordinary people can sometimes see a door open and just run through it and create a multi-million dollar fraud scheme out of nowhere. And um, what I what I liked about that movie is it just showed the vulnerability that all of us have because every every crime isn't committed by some top our Ivy League NBA Wall Street holder person. And so I like that um, that movie gave the voice to the everyday person. I think that that's what you see now with COVID and all the PPP loan fraud. Mm-hmm. You see people that you would never think engage in fraud now engage in fraud. Oh yeah. I have a, I have a favorite, um, it feels like every other week. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Well, here's the thing about queen pins. I'm, I'm a retired pro athlete as, as well. And, uh, I was a bike racer and, um, uh, which is not much better as far as financially than being a race walker. So I understood, I was like, yes, you're poor. Like there's no better way to go poor than being an elite athlete. I'll tell you that. Um, so I kind of understood it, but yeah, I mean, they, they made it fun, uh, uh, the, the movie, right. Cause it could have been uh, done a very different way, but, um, it was, well, I think they also made it look far more sophisticated, um, in the movie, but it was a level of sophistication involved. I mean, there were multiple parties, but you know, it just, it just goes to show you that anyone can engage. Anyone can engage. That's true. That's true. And, um, cause they, they say, you know, it's not even always about need. It's just, it's sometimes just get a rush. Yeah. Sometimes you just get a rush. Sometimes you just do it cause you can. Yeah, totally. Okay. So final tips for our audience, what to protect yourself, to even catch yourself before you might do something. What do you, what do you think? Well, I guess it depends on what kind of tip are we talking about? So if, if it's tips for being a whistleblower or tips of being a victim, hopefully it's not a tip about being a perpetrator. <laughs> um, you know, I think the biggest thing in, is to pay attention to all the red and yellow flags around you because they surround you and follow up on those that are waving in your face because those are the ones that could lead to personal or professional disaster. And, um, and you know what they are because your gut tells you what they are. The hairs on the back of your neck raise, you know what they are. So that would be my, my piece of advice. Um, for victims, just know that, um, there is somebody out there waiting for you to slip up. 
So you have to make sure to maybe keep your life as simplified as you can, keep your um, social media as mellow as you can. Don't share your whole life every day because all you're doing is giving people access to make a profile of you so they can become you virtually, you know, so, or, or digitally. So um, just always stay alert, just stay alert. Cause if you're not, somebody is. That's it. That's what I tell people in my talks, pay attention or pay with pain. That's true. So Kelly, Thank you so much for coming on Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. You're just a gem. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate, and review it. I'll see you next time.